I invite you to join the, the choir in standing as we listen for God's word in the gospel reading. We begin in Luke's gospel, the 13th chapter, with the first verse. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come here looking for the fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He, that's the gardener, replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. We're grateful to God for the reading from his word. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let me see. I don't know that anyone has been the uh, subject of more dramatic stories than uh, in our lifetime than Winston Churchill. The story that we think about uh, today uh, comes from when he was doing a graduation speech. He came to the, to, to the podium, uh, sat there listening to a very, very, very long introduction. And then when time came for him to speak, he stood, strode to the microphone, looked at the, at the whole audience waiting for his magical words, and he said these words. Never give up. And with that, he went back and sat down. The graduates and everyone else there for, for the graduation ceremony didn't know exactly what to do. They sat in stunned silence. So Churchill stood up and went back to the microphone and said again, Never give up. They still didn't know what to, what to do to respond. So he went to the microphone a third time and a fourth time. Five times he went with the same message, never give up. And after that, so the story goes, he gave up, went and sat down, and the speech was over. And no, none of those graduates would ever forget the message that had been told to them on that important day. Never give up. There's nobody, nobody that I have ever heard of who deserved the right to give that message more than Winston Churchill. As we perhaps have learned more in recent years than ever before, it was his unwillingness to give up that kept Great Britain in the war when everything seemed against it. It was his unwillingness to give up that came in the face of totalitarianism dominating 
all the continents of the, of the old world. It was Churchill who insisted that they not give up. But it's really true for everyone who has ever accomplished anything great that they faced obstacles and had to remind themselves, don't give up. The truth is, it's, it's true of, of anyone who's ever accomplished anything, whether it's great or not. Don't give up. Never give up. Does God give up? In our text today, the first verses that we're not going to pay a lot of attention to uh, reference some disasters. They, they must have been sort of current events at the time so that everyone knew what Jesus was talking about. Unfortunately, uh, those, uh, uh, those uh, files of the Jerusalem Times have been lost to history and we don't know what the disasters were exactly. There's some thought that the thing about Pilate causing the mixing the Galileans' blood with their sacrifices refers to a time when, when he wanted to divert some of the temple revenue to uh, his own private practice, and they, he met with a with a protest, and he sent uh, soldiers in disguise in disguise in among the crowds who who slaughtered those who were protesting against him. But we we don't know that, but it's sort of typical of of the pilot that history records. The Tower of Siloam, we don't even know what, what that is, but, but, but these were things where the question was raised. Were these people killed because they were, because of their sins? And hence, were these people killed because they were worse sinners than all the others? Were the ones who died worse than those who, who survived? And Jesus rejects that, that calculus of bad things happening only to bad people. Jesus really says to them, don't worry about things you cannot understand, but focus instead on what you do understand. And that may be your own sinfulness and repent, change your direction, change your, your mind. And then Luke moves to the issue that, that I've raised about God giving up. And he gives us the parable of the, of the fig tree. Apparently it was not unusual to have a fig tree planted in, the, in, a, in a vineyard, planting different crops together. Uh, reminds me of when we moved to Leesburg years ago and one of the big farms was known for their pecans. And we drove through an area where they were planting new pecan trees and, and um, among and around the pecan trees were, were new peach trees. And uh, you, you see this now around middle Georgia if, if, you, uh, if you get off I-75. But uh, I, I asked some of my friends, what's going on? They said, the life of a peach tree is so much shorter than the productive life of a pecan tree. They plant the two together and by the time the pecan tree has reached its most productive years of its life, the peach trees have already exhausted their life and they're ready to be torn out. It was not unusual to have this fig tree in the middle of a, of a great uh, vineyard, but it still took 
nourishment from the soil. And that's what the, what the owner seems to be focusing on. He comes and he, he, he's looking for fruit that was rightfully his. He should have been able to expect it. Now, uh, exactly the details of that depends on which commentator uh, and, and which source of ancient agriculture you read. But, but essentially the point is there should have been fruit there and there wasn't. And so he says, why should it take up the soil? Go ahead and tear it out. And the gardener uh, is very respectful of the, of the owner, but he takes the side of the fig tree. And he says, sir, maybe, maybe so, but, but why don't we give it another year of extra special care? And then if not, then you can tear it up, but it might, it might yet turn into something worthwhile. And the parable ends without a clear answer. There's no revisiting the story a year later to see what happened to that poor fig tree. But one year, one more year, was all that anyone could expect. Now the Old Testament had so frequently spoken of Israel as God's vineyard that anyone listening to this parable would assume that in this parable, the owner represented God and, the, and the, the fig tree represented God's people. Anyone listening here would understand that we as God's people are expected to bear fruit, even as we would understand that God is merciful, but in the parable, there is a final chance. So, you say, Marcus, do you believe that there's such a thing as hell? Interesting, you should ask that. I really heard you say that, uh, even though you're sitting very respectfully and, and quiet. Um, you know, I, I, I want to tell you that I, I, I don't go in for the, you know, the, the uh, lakes of fire and so forth and so on. I understand that to be figurative uh, language. But, but what I really want to tell you is, I've known people to talk about heaven and hell in such a way that you get the idea they would be disappointed if there's not a hell. You know, that, that they're, if, if they got to heaven and found out there was no hell, they'd say, Dad, gummit, why, why, why did I spend all that effort being good? I don't sign on to that. I would be perfectly happy if I, if I get to heaven and they say, change of plans. It's, it's not there. I'd say, good. God's got a better idea. The, the one picture of heaven and hell that begins to make sense to me, and it's not a literal picture of it, not surprisingly, comes from the pen of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote many kinds of, of literature, what I would call religious uh, fantasy, best known for the Screwtape Letters, a marvelous work that I learned so much from, and many of you did as well. But he, he had another book along those lines called The Great Divorce, which, if anything, I enjoyed even more than, than, uh, than the Screwtape Letters. And it's based on the idea, sometimes you find in, in, in old literature, that, that a group of people from hell are given a holiday in heaven. And they are told that if they like it, they can stay. 
Lewis draws this picture, as you would expect, somebody writing in the 1940s in, in England, as a, as a group of people on a bus ride from hell to heaven, and they're told, if you like it, you can stay. And with the magic of his, of his writing, by the end of the book, it shows that with one possible exception, it's been a long time since, a long time since I read the book, with one possible exception, everybody on the bus decides they aren't happy in heaven and they'd rather go back to where they were. And the difference is that they don't like the way God is running things. And if you, if you condensed it into a couple of sentences, it would be something like this. Ultimately, and believe me, in this sense, he really means ultimately. There are only two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, all right, if you don't like it my way, then thy will be done. Listening to the parable of the fig tree, Lewis may be right. Ultimately, God may give up. But the point of the parable, if the, the parable is not a harangue about judgment. It is a beautiful picture of mercy. And it fits well in Luke's gospel, which is a gospel of mercy and repentance. The good news is repentance and forgiveness there is never a time that we call that he does not hear us. Look at Adam and Eve who, who chose the fruit they weren't supposed to, to choose, but God didn't give up on them. Look at Abraham who passed his, his wife off as his sister, but God didn't give up on, on him. Look at Moses who killed an Egyptian and ran off into the desert. Look at David who arranged the murder of one of his faithful servants. Look at Elijah who in the moment of his highest uh, excitement and, and victory was thrown into a pit of despair and like like Moses ran into the wilderness. Look at Peter who denied him at his hour of need. Look at the disciples who all turned and fled. Look at all these people and realize that God did not give up on any of them. I've come to believe that God does not give up on us until we give up on ourselves. God does not give up on you until you give up on him. Don't give up on yourself. I've known people who did. Don't give up on yourself. The message of those first five verses that we've kind of ignored is, is to repent. You have, not given, you have not gotten so far down as to give up. When I was growing up, one, one of my uh, favorite times was when uh, Victor Borga would do an occasional television show. Now, now a number of you are old enough to remember Victor Borga. In fact, yeah. Victor Borga was a master musician, extremely talented. But there are a lot of masterful musicians. There's, there was only one who was able to use his talent for comedy based on that wonderful music. But he did have terrific musical talent. So much so 
as he tells the story that Irving Berlin once said to him, Victor, forget about the, the comedy and focus on the classics. And Borga said, I said, uh, Irving, but, but Irving, you don't understand. When I play Mozart, I hear a voice that says, give it up, give it up, give it up. Irving Berlin said, Victor, do you recognize the voice? Whose voice is it? And Borges said, it's Mozart's voice. <laughs> it didn't take Mozart to convince me that I was never going to be a world-class trombone player coming out of high school. Mozart may say, give it up, but God doesn't. Phyllis McGinley talks about the saints. She says, think about the saints. They're not idealized pictures like we see in, in so many stained glass windows. They, they are people who, who were frustrated with life, who were angry at God, who did the wrong things as much as they did the right things. Phyllis McGinley's phrase is, but they kept blundering their way toward heaven. Do not expect perfection in yourself. If you discover that you're not perfect, don't give up because of that. Expect a life of patience. Despair it is that gives up. Hope creates a resourceful attitude to stand up. As someone else said about the saints, they are not those who never fail, but those who every time they fall, get up and go again. God does not give up on us until we give up on ourselves. God does not give up on you until you give up on him. Neither are we to give up on others. Leonard Sweet comments on this passage. He points out that what the gardener was doing was not an easy path. He said, when the gardener said, give it another year, he was committing himself to another year of shoveling manure. There's no sentimentality about it, about commitment to others. It's not sentimental, but very realistic. And Sweet tells the story about a, a, a young teenager in Fort Lauderdale who captured the attention of the news media because he committed so many crimes and he was, he was uh, arrested and brought before the authorities so often, so often that when they told his story, they called him crime boy. And so a church in Fort Lauderdale decided that they were going to stop just complaining about Crime Boy. They, they reached out to him. They offered him help. They offered him their assistance and resources. And he began to change his life. And he stopped committing those crimes. And he started showing up at church. And he became uh, an exemplary uh, part of that congregation. And the newspapers came back and they covered him again. And they said, Crime Boy has become Church Boy. And it was a great story until he was arrested for stealing a bicycle. And then the news media said, crime boy who became church boy has become backslide boy. And Leonard Sweet said, should the church give up on him? When I was in Perry, some of the men in my church took part in what's called Bill Glass prison ministries. I, Bill Glass was a professional football player. He was a tackle for the Cleveland Browns, the original Cleveland Browns. 
a devout Christian who in his, in his retirement from pro football began this prison ministry where, where volunteers would take a weekend going into prisons and, and bear witness with the, the folks in, in prison. Uh, and, and of course, uh, I, I didn't participate in that. They didn't want preachers doing that, which was fine with me. But I went to the informational session and, and they were giving some statistics. They said, of course, that the recidivism rate for people leaving prison is, is more than 50%. A majority of people who get out of prison wind up going back to prison. They said, but among those whom we are able to share faith with and who sign one of these commitment cards that they had, that number drops off dramatically from above 50%, somewhere down quite a bit. And, and they said, and when someone not only signs a commitment card, but becomes discipled, uh, becomes connected to a church and attends worship and finds Christian friends, said the recidivism rate drops to only 8%. And I thought, that's good, but 8% of discipled people still go back to prison? Yes, because sin is a, is, is a terrible master that will reach out. A, a powerful uh, a force, uh, spiritual forces of wickedness we talk about in the baptismal ritual that will reach out and put its hand around your heart and pull you back in, whether it's a sin that'll wind you back in state prison or one of those others that's much more respectable, but no less deadly to the spirit. We do not, we dare not think that uh, serving others and ourselves is, a, is an easy matter. Perhaps the best story I know about it comes from the life of Susanna Wesley, father of, mother of John Wesley and Charles Wesley, the, the, the founders of the Methodist movement. Susanna Wesley had 19 children, and although, although many of them did not live to adulthood, there was always a full house. And Susanna Wesley has been prominently known as someone who took time carefully and patiently with every one of her children. And the story is that once her husband, Samuel, who could have used perhaps a dose of, her, of his wife's patience, observed Susanna reproving a child over and over and over. Don't do that. And the child would do it again. Don't do that. Do it over again. Here's how you should do it. They do it over and over again. Finally, uh, uh, in, in frustration, he said, Susanna, you must have told that child 20 times not to do that. And Susanna said, and on the 20th time, he did what he should. If I had told him that only 19 times, I would have lost all my labor. God stands willing to give one more chance. God does not give up on us until we give up on ourselves. God does not give up on you until you give up on him. So never give up on yourself. Never give up to the people who need you.